Andrew, and uh, as he said, I'm Kevin Barnhill. Uh, we've been attending Country Bible uh, here for about 14, 15 years. Uh, I have my wife, Amy, uh, who you guys got to hear back in Mother's Day in May, so I'm going to warn you right now, you got to, you got to hear the better half. Uh, you're just going to have to put up with me this, this morning. And uh, we also have our youngest son, Zachary, uh, is here. We have three sons. Uh, and we've all raised our family. We've raised our family here in Blair. And then we own a, a small meat factory here in town. So, <laughs> so, um, <laughs> sorry, Andrew, I had to throw that one in there. I thought, uh, um, so t- today, uh, we're, <laughs> today we're in Titus chapter three. Uh, and I've titled our message, Living Up to the Expectation, uh, because what, what Paul does here in chapter 3 is he clearly lays out the expectations that are given to us for godly living. So as a little background, we've been in uh, uh, Titus, uh, Timeless Truths now, and uh, Paul uh, has written this letter to, uh, to Titus, who he left on the island of Crete. Uh, and Crete's kind of a crossroads there in, in the Roman. It's a trade center. And so uh, as a consequence, there's a lot of influences uh, in, in, on the island, uh, most of them not good, a lot of pagan influences, different thoughts and, and things coming through. And so the, the young church there was struggling uh, both with uh, uh, influences and teachings from within and without. There were some within the church that were trying to push back toward the law, uh, called Judaizers, and, and they were trying to uh, uh, bring back the adherence to the law, and then you had the pagan influence. So uh, Titus was given the mission of building up the new church. And, and to do that, he was left in Crete to appoint elders. Uh, and, and the elders were given uh, in chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2. We learned that there's a, a specific list of criteria for these elders. And the main, uh, the main object of this is they had to have good doctrine, sound doctrine. And Paul defines that sound doctrine as what he had taught as far as the saving grace of Christ. And then last week, Russ, uh, who I really enjoyed, uh, talked about made for a purpose. Right, that, that part of this sound doctrine is fulfilling the purposes that God had, had designed us for. And he used, he used the illustration of a pen. For those of you who were here last week, uh, he uh, had a pen and he unscrewed it and he took the uh, inside out. And he talked about um, how without that, the pen could not fulfill its designed purpose. So God, we know God designed us. Now then, I use um, a fountain pen. And I've had this same pen for uh, well over 15 years, almost 20 years. Uh, can anybody else say that they've had a pen for 20 years? Because, right? So, uh, but what I like about fountain pens, to take that illustration even further, is there's a, a few things. One, the more you use a fountain pen, the better it writes. It actually, as you hold and use a fountain pen, it wears so that it matches your hand. And so it becomes just easier to write because it's not a generic tip. It actually molds itself and fits into you and your writing style and how hard you press or how, you know. But the other thing I like is this is a refillable pen. And like us, it needs to be refilled. And to fulfill God's purpose, we need to be filled continuously and over and over filled with the Holy Spirit. And in order to accomplish what God has designed us for. 
So that's why I've, I've brought out and going to title this uh, uh, Living Up to the Expectations because God has designed us to live a certain way and we can only accomplish that by being filled with him and through him. So we're going to open up here with Titus chapter 3 and we're going to read the first seven verses. So remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For once we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But... When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So Paul starts this passage with remind. He's reminding Titus to exhort to tell the people something they already know. He's telling them to remember what they already know and that they are to be different <clears throat> from the community around them. That's, that's what they know, is that they are called out as a church to be different from the community around them. So uh, our family, uh, we lived in the country for a while and, and um, I grew up on a, on a small farm in North Texas, and so as a consequence, I'm game for any kind of animal. And so when we lived out in the country, uh, Amy was blessed enough to uh, be exposed to, we had guineas that roosted on our deck, we had a, a pet possum uh, whose name was Liver. Uh, it's, spelled, it's spelled Oliver, but as Zach pointed out, the O is silent. So... Uh, uh, and one of my favorite pets that we ever had was a pet llama named Francis. And he answered to Frankie, but his, his real name was Francis. And so we had this llama. And the problem is that Frankie really didn't know he was a llama. So I brought, a, yes, see, that's, that is a llama in our house uh, with Zachary uh, inside. And then um, that's bath day. Zach and Frank were, uh, were really good friends. Then he went to homecoming one year. <laughs> He's the furry one in the front. We actually had a whole passel of kids come out just because they wanted their homecoming picture with Francis. Uh, that's uh, on a ride in the back of a truck with our middle son, Nathan. And then I worked out of our home, and this was outside my office most days, this view. So... Uh, the problem with Francis and with Frankie was he didn't know he was a llama. He, he had an identity issue. And the reason is, is because llamas are kind of funny little animals in that they emulate and impress on whatever group they're part of. So they don't get a clear identity. So because they don't have that clear identity, they're often unsure on how they're supposed to behave. And this can be a real problem. 
The, you know, when he was with the dog, he acted like a dog, and he played like a dog. When he was with the kids, he acted like one of the kids. They would come out and have bonfires, and he would lay down next to them on the bonfire. When we rode our horses, he would just follow along. Uh, our oldest son, when he would work out and run uh, through the gravel roads and through the country, there, there he would be, he just all along. Never had a leash, never stayed in a fence. He just was there, just part of the family. And, and you know, it wasn't that big of a deal until um, people started to come and visit, and uh, the dog would run around the house uh, to come and see who had pulled up in our yard, and then here comes the llama. And we would get phone calls from cell phones, uh, people asking, okay, you know, the, the dog we understand, but not sure, can we get out of the car? Not sure what to do with the llama. And we'd have to assure them, you know, just shove him out of the way. He's not an attack llama, and... and, and <laughs> And, you know, he's friendly enough. He's just kind of, he's a space invader. And, and so, so we had a really good time with Frankie. And um, unfortunately, uh, he had some habits. And um, he would ring the doorbell when he wanted to come inside. And, then, <laughs> and so he would come inside and hang out with us for a while until we had to throw him out. And, you know. But he, he developed a little bit of a problem. He got sideways with Amy. And so... Um, that, that's not a good place to be, and so that was short-lived. Uh, once you get sideways with Amy, he got sent away. Uh, I've been sideways with Amy. Fortunately, I do not get sent away, but it's not a great place to be. So, um, so, so he had this identity issue, Frankie did. He, uh, uh, he, he would act like whoever he was with. And the problem with that is without a clear identity, these llamas, they, uh, they start to develop a, a, a syndrome. It's a, it's a real thing. They start to develop a syndrome. It's called BLS, or uh, otherwise known as berserk llama syndrome. And, and they become violent. As they get older, they try to start asserting some dominance, and they become violent towards the people that love them. And so I, I, I think about that, and I look at that, and I think, you got to teach a llama to be a llama. And the church is surrounded by many influences, both good and bad. And we have to live with these influences. But we have to taught, be taught how to be the church. And that's what Paul is doing here, is he's laying out the expectations that God has as a Christian in this world. There are expectations that we need to meet. We cannot be like those around us, tossed about and blown and changing all the time with every new idea. You know, as part of this good, sound doctrine, it's, a, it's, it's um, an unchanging doctrine of the grace and mercy of God to the person of Jesus Christ. And when we experience that, it changes us. And part of that change becomes the expectations that are held to us that we have to do for godly living. So our title is Living Up to the Expectation. There is a clear expectation that Paul lays out here and is actually reminding the Christians of on how to be godly living. So in chapter 3, verse 1, he starts out with, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. To be submissive to rulers and authorities. And so part of this godly living is our submission to the authorities placed over us. 
Now, submission in today's society is not a good word. All right? We don't like to submit to anyone. We don't like to submit to each other. We don't like to submit to our parents. We don't like to submit. But Paul, as part of godly living, is telling us that we're to be submissive to the powers and authorities over us, to the rulers and authorities over us. And he repeats this even in Romans. Where he, tells us that, where he tells us that there is no authority placed over us that is not God-ordained. If there's somebody in authority over you, whether it be the government, your uh, uh, employer, uh, the people around you, here at church, they're there because God has put them there. Just as Christ told Pilate, you have no authority other than what has been given to you. All authority is God-ordained. And as such, as Christians, as representatives of Christ, we're to be submissive to that authority. Now, I look at our country today, and, and I wonder, I can't be the only one, and sometimes I wonder when I look at who's in power in our country today, I go, what is God thinking? How, how is this a good thing? How is what's going on around us a, a, a positive or godly or an example? But, you know, that's really not ours to figure out. We're just given a clear expectation to be good citizens. And that means we obey the traffic laws. I mean, it's as simple as the little things in how we live our daily lives. We pay our taxes. We obey the traffic laws. We uh, look both ways when we cross the street. I don't know. Take your pick. But this representation of Christ has to be reflected in our daily lives. And that's the expectation for godly living. Obedient and ready for every good work. Obedience, another uh, word that we often are uncomfortable with. We don't like to be obedient. It's right up there with submissive. But when I see obedient and when I see it in this passage, I think, obedient to whom or to what? And the obedience that we're called to is not just the submission, the submission to the worldly authorities, but it's the obedience to the command that Christ gave us when he says, a new command I give you, love one another just as I loved you. That is a sacrificial love, a love to death. Do we have that kind of love for one another? Do you have that kind of love for the people outside of this church? That is, the, that is the cornerstone of who we are, is this love for one another. Christ also says, they will know you are mine because you love one another. As a Christian, Christian means little Christ. We, claiming the name of Christ, become the representative of Christ to the world around us. We do this by how we live and how we live our daily lives. It's godly living. Ready for every good work. You know, um, good works is, is a touchy subject. And we have to be careful here. Because the expectation is that we will do good work. Good works, plural. And what that looks like and what Paul describes is physical doing something doing something to reflect Christ. But the, the fear, and what we have to be careful with here, is that good works don't bring salvation. You have to be very clear. I, I, I can't say this enough. Good works don't bring salvation. 
It's actually the opposite. Because of our salvation, because of the work that Christ has done in us, because of our changed hearts, we should produce good works. James tells us that works, that faith without works is dead. He tells us that you can say you have faith, and that's great. You can say that. You can tell me that. You can tell me I ha you have faith. But I will show you my faith by the works I do. It's imperative that in godly living, we work and we do good works. Good works is what builds the body. The good works that we're to do flow out of our love for God and each other. And good works build the body. We have such a need here at Country Bible. Such a need at Country Bible. We need volunteers everywhere. We need nursery workers. I'm not a nursery worker. I'm sorry. Uh, as, as much as my wife would like me to be or other people, I, I don't do babies at all. I, I, I barely did my own babies. I, I just, they make me, they scare me. I don't know what to do with them. Babies scare me. Um, I had never held a baby at any point in my life until I was in the delivery room with our oldest uh, son. And thank God uh, we had toddlers. Uh, our first son was uh, 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 10 pounds, 11 ounces. So we had big babies. And, and it was nice and comfortable for me because it wasn't so fragile. But I'm in the delivery room, and the nurse goes, do you want to hold him? And I said, no, not particularly. Uh, I've, never, I've never held a baby in my life. And she, she just goes, well, it's about time, and just throws this. And, you know, so they just make me uncomfortable. Now, some people may be uncomfortable getting up here. I'm uncomfortable being up here. But, you know, that's not my gift. I, you don't want me to be a nursery worker. I like uh, teenagers. They're okay because I can yell at them. And they typically don't get their feelings hurt, right? They're pretty hard-headed. I, I had three teenage boys, uh, you know, and we had a lot of fun. So every one of us has our gifts that we're equipped with to do good work. But remember... You're not going to be asked to do a work that God doesn't equip you for. It may even be out of your comfort zone. You may say, oh, well, that's not my gift. And it might not be your gift. But if God calls you to that work, he will equip you for that work. And so let's step out of our comfort zone and quit resting ourselves on our gifts and just do the work. There's a lot of work to do. We're told that the harvest is plentiful. There's a lot of harvest but the workers are few. And sometimes it's hard, it's uncomfortable, but we're equipped. And our first equipment that we give is the love that we're commanded to show. We love because we have been loved. Now that good works are not just within the church, wouldn't it be great if Country Bible became known as the church that does? That we don't just talk about being Christian. We don't just sit out here with our nice building and uh, new paint and stage and, and a great new pastor and growth. And, and wouldn't it be great if we moved outside this building? That if we actually engaged our community, that if we moved our good works from just building up our own body, but adding to the body, it'd be great if we had the reputation of being, when, when people hurt, 
when people are in trouble, when people need something, that we as Christians step out of our comfort zone, that we go and we help and we work. The best way a local church has to witness to the lost is through the sacrificial service of its members. We need that reputation in the community, and not just for country Bible, but for the name of Christ. As Christians, we represent and bear the name of Christ. Does, do people know you as a Christian just because of what you say or because of what you actually do? What Paul is talking about here is where the rubber meets the road. There's an expectation for godly living. And part of that expectation for godly living is doing for others. It's working. It's moving outside of ourselves. Speak no evil of anyone. Avoid quarreling. Be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Speak no evil to anyone and avoid quarreling. Uh, here is where I would just... Uh, uh, I would just cut to the chase. What he's talking about here is gossip. Gossip is horrible. It's, 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 it's. Uh, gossip could be a sermon series all in and of itself. There's, there's so much that can be said about the destructive power of the tongue. You know, uh, again, James talks to us about how, how the tongue is, is, is wicked. And such a, such a small thing can change the course of so much in just the tongue. And it's to be harnessed like the bit in a horse's mouth that we have to control our tongue. Gossip is defined as casual or unconstrained conversation, typically involving details that are not confirmed as being true. So then that brings the question, then if it's true, it's not gossip, right? No. No. If it's not building the body... It's destroying the body. If the words you repeat are not building people up, building someone up, building up the body, lifting up our pastors, lifting up our teachers, then you're not helping. You're hurting. It's really not any different than what my grandmother and I'm sure everybody else's grandmother taught you. If you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. And I know that seems kind of trite and a little just kind of folk wisdom, but there's a lot of truth there. We can cut so deep with the words that we say, whether intended to or not, that we must guard our words and be careful with what we say. And we also need to be careful with what we hear. It's okay to tell people, I don't think I want to hear that. It's okay. Because even if you don't repeat it, what you hear diminishes the subject. So whoever you hear it, it diminishes your view of them. Whether you believe it or not, it leaves marks. The words we say leave marks. So I can't say enough about gossip. It's a cancer that eats the body from within. And cancers sometimes go unnoticed or ignored. But if left unchecked, gossip will destroy the body. We're called to be gentle and courteous. You know, that's almost, this courteousness that, that Paul's talking about here is the extension of grace to one another. It's an attitude of sweet reasonableness. Because we have an expectation that we're to live to through godly living, 
And I, I know that we hold each other, and we should hold each other accountable. But as we hold each other accountable, are we so tied into the letter of the law that we lose sight of the grace that God has extended to us? Remember, when we're dealing with other believers, we all bear his name, but to insist on the letter of the law is not to let God's grace flow through you. Let God's grace flow through you. We are all just failed and broken people. The only thing that we have going for us is God's grace, God's love, and God's mercy. And without that, we're just one more of the many. But with God's grace and God's love and God's mercy, we can allow that to flow through us and to others into our relationships within the body and with outside the body. We are held to a standard. It's not fair to judge those outside the outside the fellowship, outside of being Christian, to the same standard that we're held to. We have to show them the same grace, mercy, and love that God showed us. You know, Frankie, he had, uh, uh, he had trouble being a llama because he was unclear of what was expected of him or his role in the group. Paul, in this first section, has given us clear instruction of what is expected of us. There is an expectation for godly living. And we have to live up to that as our role as Christians. And, and that's our role as Christians in society as a whole and to each other. This godly living is an extension of what God has done for us internally. And that without God, we cannot accomplish this godly living. It's futile to think that we can do this on our own. These expectations are lofty and unattainable on our own. But the expectations laid out for godly living can be met through the work of Christ. Through that love, grace, and mercy flowing from God through us to others. People know who we are by how we behave. Like it or not. We can talk about how we love our church. We can talk about all sorts of things. But the proof is in the pudding. Words, are, words don't mean anything. It's actions that speak louder than words. So I'm going to ask, what are you doing? Are you serving the body? Are you serving outside the church? Are we working? Are we doing the good works that we're called to do? Reminder again, good works are not salvation. Good works flow from our salvation and our love for Christ, not the other way around. I cannot be good enough. I cannot check enough boxes. I can't do enough good works to merit God's favor. God has favored us in spite of who we are, not because of who we are. As a reminder to that, Paul continues on in verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Before we start to take pride in how nifty we are because of our good works, Paul brings this reminder that says, remember, remember where you came from. 
Remember where God has brought you and the expectations that he has equipped you to, to, to live out. Remember that you were once one of these. Don't look down on people that don't know Christ, that don't know the expectations, but reach out to them. Remember, you know, it's been said that God is just, just as concerned with our self-righteousness as our unrighteousness. And that's part of the danger of good works. You know, I know a lot of people um, that, that take this good works and they say, well, I'm a good person. I don't, I don't, I don't need to be a Christian, right? I'm a good person. I, I, I don't do these horrible things. But that's not enough. Good works is not enough. And unfortunately, I know quite a few Christians who also aren't very nice people. Right? Being a nice person doesn't make you a Christian. Being a Christian should make you a nice person. If you're reflecting that love of God, Christian means little Christ. We are the representatives of God around us. But we cannot be self-righteous on the godly living that's expected of us. We need to remember where we came from and who we were before God acted in our lives. We cannot be critical of our unsaved neighbors. So what do we do? We have these expectations. Paul's been very clear on what we're expected to do, how we're expected to live, what godly living looks like. He's also outlined that here's the hurdle, here's the problem. Here's the problem with the expectation. It's unattainable because of who you were, because of the sinful nature that we have. The expectation is unavailable. This is my favorite part of this passage, this word, but. Verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. But the expectation, the problem, but. Here's how God solves the problem. It's through his goodness and loving kindness that our Savior appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. This goodness and loving kindness, is, it's, it's sometimes difficult to, to, to see, to understand. We don't get it. We don't understand how God does this. But a great example can be found in 2 Samuel in the story of David and Mephibosheth. That's a big word for me, I'm sorry. Mephibosheth was Jonathan's son. Now, David, the wars were over. Saul had been killed. Jonathan had been killed. And David was now the rightful king of Israel. Except for Saul's last remaining true heir. And that was Mephibosheth. Now, legally and politically, the right thing to do would have been to have the boy killed. But he was a crippled boy. And David, out of kindness, took mercy on him, brought him into his house, and treated him like a son because of his love for Jonathan. That's the example God sets for us. Through his kindness, he brings us into his home, makes us heirs because of his love for Christ. Because of his love for his son, we enjoy the benefits we're not saved by our works. We're saved because God saves us. Through grace and mercy, we're not saved because of who we are. We're only saved because of whose we are. We cannot earn God's grace. It is God's unmerited favor. 
Verse 5, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. Again, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. We get the great picture of what this unrighteousness looks like to God in Isaiah. Isaiah refers to our unrighteousness as disease and filthy rags. The, the, the word picture there that he's painting is leprosy and the polluted garments that lepers wore. So in the ancient world, leprosy was a, was a dreaded disease. It was, it was an external disease. It was of the disease of the skin. But it was rampant. It would spread, spread so quickly. And it spread through contact. And it spread through contact not just person to person, but also through the clothes they wore, through the utensils they touched, the bedding that they slept on. So as a consequence, lepers had to be removed from the community in order to protect the whole community. The picture that Isaiah draws us of our own unrighteousness and any work that we can do in God's view is that of a leper. But only through God is that garment washed. Is it cleaned? Do we become clean? It's only because of God's grace and mercy. The leper cannot heal himself. The leper can only be healed through God's grace and mercy. We're not saved because of who we are, but only because of his great mercy. We're not saved by works. Very clearly states, not only in this passage, but in others, our works of righteousness, although required, expected, are not what saves us. As I can't say this often enough. Our works flow from the love and the changed heart that only God brings about. So it's by our faith and by our salvation that good works are produced. Good works cannot produce salvation. It's strictly a one-way flow. It can't back, go back the other way. If you're saved and you have the salvation and the love of Christ in your heart, you will produce good works. You will do things. But doing things doesn't bring favor to God. It's only because of God's favor that we can do the works that are required from us for godly living. The washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is poured out on all those who believe in Christ. It's, um, it's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that brings about the expectations for godly living, the ability to meet the expectations for godly living. I love how Ezekiel puts this. I am going to read this one. It's Ezekiel 36, verses uh, 26 and 27. This is him speaking. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. It's only because of the spirit that God has put in us that we have the capability and the ability to obey the statutes that he's laid out before us. The requirements for godly living can only be met through the Holy Spirit, by the work of the Holy Spirit, by the washing of the Holy Spirit. This is not a baptism. 
It's a complete change. It's a regeneration. It's a new growth. It's our sinful heart and our sinful nature that's removed and replaced by the God nature, by, the, by, by, by God's spirit that brings about the desire for us to meet his statutes. He puts that desire in us to live godly lives. And it's only through his spirit that that is, that that is put in us. This washing, this infilling of the Spirit is what brings our heart and our thoughts in alignment with God's desires on how we live to meet what we were designed to do and to fulfill the expectations that He's put out for us. It's a total transformation. We are radically changed by the Holy Spirit. I don't, you know, Paul goes through this list, and, and, you know, one of those things that he says in there is, is hating each other, hating one another, hating ourselves. It's that sinful spirit, it's that, it's that sinful nature that we're all born with that brings about that hatred. But the spirit dwelling within us brings such a radical change for love, for love for each other, Love for others outside ourselves. It, it's it's as as I see and watch myself, as I dig deeper into God's word and and the desire gets stronger. I view people in the world so much differently than I did ten years ago, fifteen years ago, twenty years ago. When I was uh, um, before I. Uh, got saved uh, in, my, in my early 20s, I, uh, uh, I was really not a very nice person. I actually um, had real, no real plan past the age of 25. I, had, I was in my 20s. I thought, you know what? I'm living for now. I'm living for me. I'll be dead to ditch somewhere by the time I'm 25. But... God brought to me a, a, a lovely girl and um, worked in my heart and changed my desire for how I view myself and how I view mostly other people. I'm, I'm a, 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 believe it or not, I'm actually a little bit of an introvert. I, I don't... Um, I, I don't uh, I'm not very good at being intimate. I, I don't uh, share much of myself. I, uh, uh, I, I'm just a very private individual, and I, I kind of always have been. And it's something that over 28 years that uh, Amy has tried to, tried to bring out of me. But what I'm trying to tell you is that it's, it's this work of the Spirit in my heart and in your heart that brings about a different view of those around us. It's that grace and mercy. When we understand, when we finally grasp the depth and breadth of God's grace and God's mercy that he showed to us and poured out on us through his Holy Spirit, only then can we see other people for broken and in need of a Savior. And they need what we can give them. But they're not going to listen unless we love. 
And it's that love. Paul finishes here after the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Paul finishes here with our hope. Verse 7 says, So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Justified is a legal term. And that is, uh, this is not original to me. But justified means just as if I'd never sinned. Justified is more than just being forgiven. Because you can be guilty and be forgiven. You can be guilty and not pay a penalty. Right? We've all, maybe not all of us, but I've gotten a few traffic tickets where suspended fine or you do the stop class or, you know, and then, and then but you're still guilty. Your crime may have been forgiven or your, your infraction. Some people I know were convicted, went to jail. They come out of jail. Society has forgiven them, right? They've paid their debt, but they're still guilty. This is why justified is so different. Because not only are you declared innocent, it's as if the crime never occurred. It's forgotten. Not only are you forgiven, but it's forgotten. It's, it's beyond... It's beyond what we can do. We cannot do this for ourselves. We cannot justify ourselves before God. Only God, through the work of Christ, sees us as justified because he sees Christ's work, not our work. Again, it's not our works that saves us. It's the work of Christ on the cross and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that brings us into alignment with God. And the final part of that alignment is our hope we're justified, and through that justification, we're given a hope. Now, we use a lot of words. My wife says I have a lot of words. We use a lot of words that we've tended to water down the meaning. Love is one of those words. You know, we love this, we love that, I love that. And it's just, we toss that word around. Um, marriage, we're in the process of redefining marriage as a society. We toss these words around, and they've lost some of their original meaning and some of their original punch. And hope is one of those words. We use the word hope like we're wishing on a star, like it's, uh, uh, it's, it's just a, uh, um, some fanciful desire for a pleasant outcome, right? Boy, I hope I can play a good round of golf today, or... I, I, I hope I don't get stuck behind the train. Or, you, you know, we, we, we've tossed this word around and we've made it so light that it's almost meaningless. But the hope that Paul is describing is not that kind of hope. It's a promise. It's an assurance. It's living. It's the foundation that our faith is built on. And it's given by God. God keeps his promises. That's the one thing you can know is that God is faithful and God keeps his promises. And when he promises hope of an eternal life with Christ, know that that is what's going to happen. That is the truth. And it's because of the work of Christ, the salvation, of, the salvation over the sin nature that pours his spirit into us and creates this love that we become the representative of Christ to the world around us. So I got to ask, do you get your identity from God and what he has done in your heart and life?
Through the hope and power of God, do you live a godly life that lets those around you know your true identity? Or like Frankie, are you unsure of your identity? Are you not clear where you're at? Do you turn on the ones that you love most or that love you most because of your unclear identity? Are you the chameleon that when you're in this place, when you're at school, you act one way, when you're at church, you act one way, when you're at work, you act another way, when you're at home? You know, how many, how many yous are there? Or do you get your identity from God and the work he has done? I want to um, wrap up with just uh, one final thought. As we leave, just remember, the only evidence the unsaved world has that we belong to God is our godly living. You can talk. You can do whatever else you want, but that is the only true evidence that the unsaved world has is our godly living. Thank you.